How many of you remember the WWJD? Anybody remember what it stands for? Yeah, what would Jesus do? Not Justin, Jesus. Um, what would Jesus do? Don't, now I'm going to say it wrong the rest of the time. You can't do that to me. Um, what would Jesus do? Uh, you know, and that was a fad kind of in the 90s and the early 2000s. How many of you still have any of those bracelets? Anybody still wear them? Yeah, a couple. Oh, okay. All right. No, don't wear them anymore. Well, I was being all nostalgia this last week and, and we were watching um, you know, we were talking about a movie and we were, I was trying to find one. So I went through, uh, some of my old DVDs and I was looking for this movie. I found it, but not only that, I found, um, a case that had all kinds of CDs in them. And, uh, wow. Talk about, you know, it was like, I don't even know if we have anything that can play these anymore. Teresa found out that the DVD player in our Suburban, uh, is also a CD player. So she's like been jamming to all of the original wow, uh, CDs and all of that. Some of you millennials are like, what's a CD? Um, ask your grandparents, they'll know what it is. Um, but, uh, you know, we were listening to all of that and I came across a couple of these, uh, bracelets and I was like, oh my, and it took me back. Um, and then I started thinking, um, and yesterday, so, um, confession time, uh, to you. Um, so, uh, I, I, I'm asking you to, res- uh, to absolve me of my sins. Um, yesterday I was with, we, we played softball yesterday. We went to get lunch. Um, it was dinner and I walked inside of these doors and I asked myself, what would Jesus do? And I knew right away that Jesus would eat Christian chicken. So for the first time in three years, I broke down and had Chick-fil-A. It was good. Um, Honestly, it was good, but it wasn't one of those that I was like, oh, man, I can't believe I've missed this. It was like, it was all right. You know, I I mean, I'd still I'd I'd rather have Mission Barbecue. Um, That's just who I am now. But, uh, you know, it was one of those things that I was like, oh, I. I ate it, and I had to tell you that I ate it, okay? So um, I don't know if it's going to keep me away or whether I'll go back, but it, it was good. And I asked myself, what would Jesus do? And I knew, I just knew without a shadow of a doubt what he would do. Um, now, the WWJD, it didn't come about as a fad in the 1990s. It actually has its origins back to 1896, Because in 1896, Charles Sheldon wrote a book called In His Steps. And in this book is where we get this idea of what would Jesus do. Well, he actually took it from the verse that we're going to look at this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. And from there we read, Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And so that's where this phrase comes from, the what would Jesus do movement. We're going to talk more about that at the end. But as we talked about last week, in our message last week, we looked at verses 13 through 17, and we learned that we are supposed to be responsible and to be submissive towards our government, because good Christians are good citizens. From our text today, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and t- uh, to turn uh, to... First Peter chapter two, verses 18 through 25. And we're going to discover the importance of submission to our work relationships. And that when we suffer, we're to remember the savior. 
And then next week, we're going to grapple with how to be submissive and how it works inside of a marriage relationship by learning that spouses are to serve one another. And there's one word that really um, stands out in, in these three messages, and it is that word of submission. And we talked about this last week, that that word of submission is not a word that when we read it, we go, that's an American word right there. That's about as anti-American as you can get because we don't want to submit to anyone. We don't see that as being something that we have been called to do. But listen, unless you submit to the Savior, you will really struggle with this entire section of First Peter. No matter what the situation, we're to respond with a submissive attitude. Here's a helpful definition. To rank yourself under someone else in order to lift them up and to build them up. And again, that's hard for us. Because in sports or anything else, when we go, well, we should put somebody ahead of us. Well, you know, and, and that, you know we, we have that phrase, well, I am second and, and I should consider myself second. We have a real problem with that. Because in sports, second is what? Second is the first loser. And so we don't like that mentality. We don't want to submit to anyone. So being able to put somebody in front of us, that's really hard for us. But as Christians, that's who and what we have been called to do. Now, to understand this uh, particular section of Scripture, we have to really understand who Peter was writing to. Now, we've talked a lot about uh, that Peter was writing to the Roman Empire and that Nero was the emperor. He was a very evil emperor, especially to the Christians. But well, the other thing that we have to understand about this section of scripture is that one third of the population of Rome were slaves. Slavery was extremely common in this time. And there were four main types of slaves in the Roman Empire. Those that worked the mines, those that worked on the farms, in the cities, and in the homes. Now, that last category is who Peter was specifically talking about in this section. He was talking about those that were considered slaves inside of the home, household slaves. Slaves in the Roman Empire were generally treated pretty well. Many of them actually would rise uh, to being managers and trained professionals. Well, we, we look at the Old Testament, we have an example of this with Pharaoh, or not with Pharaoh, but with Potiphar and with Joseph. They were normally paid for their services and they would have some protection underneath of the Roman law. But nevertheless, here's the important thing. They were still held against their will. They were not free. One, one commentator put it this way. He says, there needs to be a stronger word than servant, but a weaker word than slave. So he suggested calling them semi-permanent employees without legal or economic freedom. You know, the New Testament doesn't endorse slavery, yet we don't see that it is forbidden as well. R.C. Sproul's points out that 
all the seeds for the dissolution of slavery are sown into the New Testament. Christianity did not abolish slavery, but it introduced a new relationship of brotherhood, one of dignity for every person that eventually led to the societal transformation. We see this in Philemon chapter or Philemon 16. There's only one chapter. Philemon 16, Paul urged a slave owner named Philemon to receive his runaway slave back, no longer as a bond servant, we read, but more than a bond servant, as a fellow or a beloved brother. Paul says later in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And we can apply this passage, and that's what we're going to do for the rest of our time today. We're going to apply this passage to that employer-employee responsibility. And I know that it doesn't fully meet um, the standard of what we're talking about here, but I want us to look at it in, in a similar way. Because there's times that we can feel, in some cases, that we are slaves to our jobs, right? That we really don't own anything, but we have collective bargaining. The OSHA protects us and employees are legally covered from harassment and job discrimination. And here's here's the best thing. If you don't like your job, what can you do? You can quit. You can go find another one, right? But we've talked about that with slaves. They were unable to do that. And as we look through this passage, I don't want to minimalize or trivialize anything that we're talking about here. But there are some of you that do feel trapped, that you feel like you hate your job, that you're being taken advantage of. Well, how do we work through that? And so I find five exhortations that Peter really brings about through this passage. The first one, he says, to live out your position as a servant. Live out your position as a servant. First Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 20 says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it? But if you do good, but when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So employers, they need to be careful to not treat people as if they're property. And employees must exhibit a Christ-like quality in our lives. You see, we talked last week that Christians are called to be good citizens, but we're also called to be the best employees as well. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So let's look at that first exhortation and how we've been called to live it out. Live it out with respect towards your boss. We're called to be submissive and to have a submissive heart. Look at verse 18. It says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. This means to have a healthy desire to avoid 
their displeasure by showing admiration, even devotion. Your employee or your employer isn't really nice, isn't very good to you, yet you're still supposed to show devotion to your job. It reminds me of a, an old Dennis the Menace cartoon where Dennis is sitting in a rocking chair. He's facing the corner where his mother has put him in timeout. As he looks over his shoulder, he cries out, I'm sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm standing. You see, we're called to obey both on the inside and on the outside. So have respect towards your boss. Secondly, endure faithfully even when it's not fair. Verse 18 continues, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. We've probably all heard the phrase, no good deed goes unpunished. And when we look at this, it's much easier to serve a kind and gentle boss, right? I and mean, we would love to have that boss that gives us, you know, casual Friday and, and lets us off early and kind of, you know, just is, is just gentle and kind and loving and just takes care of us all the way through. Teresa had one of those bosses uh, when we lived in Ohio. She worked for um, a neurologist. And uh, he was one, just an amazing doctor. He was always gracious. He always gave back to um, his employees. He was just one of those bosses that was just awesome to work for. And he took them on vacations. He would send them to the spa like she loved working for him. The problem was, is that in the last couple of years, his wife, who was also a neurologist, came and worked with him. And she had a different way of doing things. And he was giving up too much money for all of this extra stuff. So they didn't get to do all that extra stuff anymore. They would still go to the spa once in a while, but he wasn't flying them to New York and paying for everything when he sent them. They weren't receiving a $1,000 bonus at the end of every year. They received like 50, you know, um, like everything changed and she came, she would come home and she was like, oh, you know, I just, it's so hard working when, when she's there because, you know, and I'm not going to share the names of who it was, but cause I mean, he is, he, he is an amazing doctor. Um, but it, it, it hurt, it changed. And she was like, I just don't know if I want to work there anymore, but we had a, a great talk, you know, and, and it's great when we have that gentle and kind and loving boss, but it changes a little bit when things aren't as fair. Um, in life. The word that's used when we have that boss that's really difficult, um, it's where we get our word for scoliosis or crooked. You know, some of us had a pretty sensitive justice meter. We want to let people know that when something's wrong, that we don't believe that it's fair. C.S. Lewis was once asked, why do the righteous suffer? I absolutely love his answer. He says, why not? They're the only ones that can take it. Let that sink in for just a second. As Christians, when we are gracious and we are loving, we should be able to take what is given to us. So, with respect, endure faithfully. And here it is. See God as your ultimate boss. 
See God as your ultimate boss. Look at verse 19. It says, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures, but also to the unjust. You see, when we submit in order to honor God, it is commendable. The word here is approval, favor, or grace. Notice that we're called to endure grief, even to suffer wrongly. But when we do good, we receive favor, God's favor. Now that word favor has been used wrong by a lot of televangelists, TV preachers. They take that word favor and they go, well, God is going to show favor on you, meaning wealth, health, and happiness. And we would all like those three things, right? How many would not like those things? Now, I know, right? We would all like to have those three things. But here's the thing. We're not called to be happy, are we? We're called to be joyful. And joyful is different because even when we don't have health and wealth, we can still be joyful. Now, I love to be happy. Being happy is a lot of fun. Being joyful means that sometimes it hurts. But we can still see the light at the end of the tunnel of everything that is happening to us. You see, one of the best ways to stay on track in the workplace is to recognize that ultimately the Almighty is your employer. The key is to be mindful of who your master really is. And then we're called to persevere patiently to please God. Look at verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You see, when we suffer for what is right, we will please God. And here's the thing, we will suffer when we're doing good, when we're doing right, when we're standing up for the right people, when we're standing up, even in the hard, tough situations, we're doing what is good, we will suffer. And we need to be prepared for that to come our way. And while we don't always know in advance how much we're going to suffer, one thing that we do know is if we're serious about following Jesus, suffering will come our way. In what shape, in what form, we're not always for sure. But we do know that suffering will come at us. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You see, ministry is often a struggle, but it's worth it. You know, there's times where things are going rough, and you know, there's, there's things, that hardships that are coming my way, and I've, I've had people ask me, Travis, you look like things are going pretty well. Would you rather be doing something else? And my answer every single time, no way. I love what I do. And I wouldn't give it up for anything. There's times that we question ourselves in what we're doing. But we can go back and hold on to these words. And please, maybe if you're struggling with where you're at right now, I hope these words just encourage you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Give it everything that you have. (coughs) Excuse me. And if you suffer, it's okay because you know that what you're doing is not in vain. And there's so many ways that that we can look at that. There's there's people that will say, well, I I put together a whole lesson plan and I plan to do a Bible study and only two people showed up. But you just had an opportunity to share with two people. Well, I wanted to start uh, um, a, a Bible study and we were going to meet at a coffee shop and it was going to be an awesome time and it was everything was going to be so awesome and no one showed up. But your labor is not in vain. And here's why. Because you took the time to study the scriptures and to prepare. And if for nothing else, you grew yourself. I love the people that come to me and they'll say, Travis, I'm so glad that you gave the suggestion that I start serving in in the two or three year old room or I start serving in in the preschool room or or with Miss Christie because, you know, I thought, oh, I'm just going to go in and I'm going to hang out with some little kids and some babies. But there's a lesson plan and we did it and I actually learned something. Here's the thing, when you go in and you serve in the two and three year old room, if you're in the toddler room, or if you're in the preschool room, or if you're in the K through uh, first grade, or if you're with the fourth and fifth graders, you're going to get to prepare something and you're going to learn in and of yourself. And sometimes it actually helps us because we want to listen to the preacher and we want to listen to, 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 to the big things that happen. But then we go and we, we have it broken down really easy for us and we go, that makes sense now. I never put it in first grade terms. You know, I, I'm really not smarter than a fifth grader. But when it's broken down for us, we go, oh, wow. Because we can take it in. You may think, well, I have a new neighbor that moved in. And, and Travis, you told me that I should go over and I should invite him to church. And, and I went over and invited him to church. And they said, well, me and my family are atheists. And, and we're never going to step foot inside of a door of a church. Thanks, Travis. But you never know. Maybe a week later, six months down the line, two years later, you planted a seed. They're having trouble with their children. Marriage is on the rocks. Mom's been diagnosed with cancer. And they remember that conversation standing by the fence line where you invited them to your church. And you planted a seed that now they recall. Never think that anything that you do is in vain. Because you are doing it for the Lord. So the first thing that we see here is to live out your position as a servant. And then number two, follow Jesus as your pattern of submission. Look at verse 21. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Here it is. We're called to suffer. All of us have been called to suffer. Are you aware that as a Christian, you're called to suffer? If not, I just told you, and I'm going to tell you again. You've been called to suffer. 
when I get all that I'm wanting and I think that I have the right to demand something and I have this self-righteous attitude, I need to be careful because that's when I'm going to be knocked down. I, I love what Bonhoeffer, who was martyred for his faith in Nazi Germany, he said this. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You see, when you sign up to follow the Savior, you're signing up to suffer. We want to put ourselves up on a pedestal sometimes. And again, we don't like that word submission, but that's what we have been called to do. We're called to follow his steps. The phrase leaving you an example is so rich in meaning. How many teachers do we have in here? Any teachers? I got a couple of teachers in here. Okay. Now, for some of you, um, especially millennials, you're not going to know what I'm talking about. Um, but if you go back for the rest of you, when you were um, a, a kid, um, you had the chalk and, you know, the teacher would put the three pieces of chalk in line and then she would write across that chalkboard and make that horrible, awful sound. And then she would have dots that went around. And then what did you get to do? Yeah, you got to go up on and you got to trace and follow along. This is the rich meaning that we have in what we're seeing here. Because we have been called to trace after the Savior. He has given us a way to follow Him. He has given us a transcript. And we have been called just to follow it. He suffered and because he suffered, we must be prepared to suffer and also suffer in the way in which he did. We have been called to copy his character. When he suffered, he remained silent. Follow his steps. This is what we read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. It says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now go back with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 through 23. It spells it out very clearly. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So here Peter is remembering back to the Old Testament words of Isaiah in Isaiah 53. And he's laying all of that out for us. Jesus was treated unfairly. And we can trace what Jesus did when he was treated unfairly. When everything seemed to really be going wrong for Jesus. How did he act? What did he do? He did not act sinfully. Jesus committed no sin. Now, we will not be able to achieve the same thing that Jesus did to remain sinless and perfect. But we can trace and strive to be just like Jesus. We're also called to not speak sinfully. Make sure your lips match your life. That's what this is really all about. Make sure that your lips match your life. Guard what comes out of your mouth. Avoid workplace gossip and complaining about your boss. Proverbs chapter 13 verse 33 says, Whoever guards his mouth and whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide, his lips come to ruin. 
Also, don't retaliate. Don't retaliate. And that one's a hard one for us to do. When Jesus was reviled, he didn't go ballistic on them. He remained silent and let it happen. And that's very, very important for us to be able to understand. I think this may have been one of the hardest things that Peter may have had to pen, put pen to paper. There was a lot of things that, that Peter writes that I think really made him think about what he was writing because of his own life. And this was probably one of those. Because what we remember about Peter is in John chapter 18, Jesus is being taken into, uh, he is being arrested in the garden. And as he is being arrested, what's Peter do? Pulls a sword out. He pulls out a sword and he should have stuck to being a fisherman because he misses the guy almost completely and just cuts his ear off. And Jesus says, no, Peter, that, that's not who we are. He tells Peter to lay the sword down. And Jesus takes and performs a, a great miracle and puts the guy's ear back on. Jesus told him to put his sword away. Some of us need to put our swords away. Don't retaliate. And trust God to make the wrongs right. You see, just as Jesus committed himself to the ultimate judge, so too must we rely on God to handle justice. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. What are we supposed to do in the meantime? If we're supposed to just sit back and let it all happen, what should we be doing? Look at the verse, the, the very next verse. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. What? You sure, Jesus? You sure, Paul? Ah. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In other words, serve those who are slamming you. Serve those who are cutting you. Serve those who are hurting you. Jesus, God, is the final and ultimate judge. I've had people come to me and they say, well, Travis, do you really think so-and-so is going to be in heaven? I don't know. And I'm really glad I'm not the judge. Now, I know that if he hasn't lived a life of God and he hasn't given his life over to Jesus, if he hasn't been saved, if he hasn't lived for God, he's probably not going to be in heaven, right? Because that's what scripture tells us. But then there's those that come back and they'll say, well, Travis, think about someone like Hitler. What if Hitler would have given his life over to Jesus? Are you saying that someone who killed six million people and had even more people killed, that, that someone like that's going to go to heaven? Gave his life to Jesus. Well, how could you possibly say something like that? Don't ask me. I'm not the judge. But what I do know is we need to be careful when it comes to that judgment. Because of, some of us really like to sit in that judgment seat, don't we? We need to make sure that we let that go. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Let it go. 
So the first exhortation for employees is to live out your position as a servant. Secondly, follow Jesus as your pattern of submission. And number three, allow Jesus to deliver you from the penalty of sin. Check out the first part of verse 24. It says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The word bore translates to the word carry up. You see, the father counted our sins against Christ. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus carried our sins, your sins and my sins. He carried them to the cross. He bore them for us. The reference to the tree takes us to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, which speaks about the commend, uh, the condemned criminal being cursed by hanging on a tree. Never forget. Jesus took the curse that was due to you and bore it on Calvary. He took your sins to the cross with him. Number four, trust Jesus to give you the power to serve him. You see, not only have we been freed from our sin and the penalty of sin, but we have been given the power to serve him. Look at the second part of verse 24. It says that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. You see, we have died to sins so that we can live to serve the Savior. Did you know that this word servant in one form or another is extremely important to God. The word servant is used over a thousand times within the scriptures. Telling us that there's a very large importance that is placed upon it. That's a pretty big deal. In Numbers chapter 12 verse 7 God refers to Moses with these words. He says, my servant Moses, he is faithful in all my house. Abraham, David, and Job are referred to as my savior by God. When Paul, James, Peter, and Jude introduced themselves in their letters, the very first thing that they did was identify themselves as a servant of God. They gave their name, who they are, and then they said that they are a servant. They belong to God. You see, there is a fundamental identity that they had and that we must have as well. And then finally, number five, your purpose is to stay close to the Savior. Your purpose is to stay close to the Savior. Look at verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. When the Bible calls us sheep, how many of you have ever raised sheep or been around sheep, spent much time with them? Anybody? Okay, come up. A couple of you have. I did. I, I grew up. Um, we had a farm. We raised sheep. Um, and I'm going to use um, nice language, but sheep are dumb. Okay? And can, can you testify to that? Yeah, okay. Sheep are not smart. Okay? They, they just aren't. And so when we are called sheep, 
it is not looking and saying, oh, that's a compliment. No, we, we raised sheep and, and we would show them at the county fair. And uh, we had two uh, different uh, paddocks that we would keep uh, the sheep in and we would open up a gate and, and they would spread out when it was time to eat. But they would all follow one trail to get to one pasture to the other. And they just followed right after one another. And, and so when we would get them prepared and ready to go to the fair, um, we wanted them to be lean. We wanted them to have the muscle and the mass to where we could show them as market uh, sheep. And so we would set up um, obstacles for them. Um, so we would put up a, a two by four rail. So in order to get to their food, they had to jump over the rail. In order to get to their water, they had to jump over a rail. If they wanted to go outside to get grass, they had to jump over a rail. In order to get their food, um, we built a set of steps and they would have to stand on those steps, which would build that muscle as they continued to stand in that position. Sheep are dumb. We, my, my, I remember being younger and my sisters and I would have to jump over the rail so they would see what to have to do. We would stand to where they would know what, to, we would have to pick their legs up because they would just go hungry if we didn't show them how to, get, they knew their food was there, but they didn't know how to get to it. And the one would jump over and the very next one ran smack dab into the two by four right in front of their face. So when Jesus calls us, when Peter calls us, when, when we are told that we are sheep, it wasn't a compliment. But he says that he is our shepherd. You see, left to ourselves, we will go astray. I love the song that we sing, that he will go after the one. You see, the shepherd knows that those 99, because they're dumb, they're going to stay together. And the shepherd leaves to go to go get that one. And he's going to find them and he's going to bring them back. And left to our own devices, left to our own free will, we will wander off. Scripture says that there is a, a way that seems right to man, but it leads to folly. And we have to remember that as well. You see, what we read in this is that God is our shepherd. Jesus is our ultimate shepherd. In John chapter 10, we're, we're told that he is the good shepherd. A shepherd constantly cares for his sheep. He brings them back into the fold. He loves on them. He protects them. But we also see that he is the overseer, the guardian. The word that we have for guardian is, is scope, giving us words like microscope and telos, telescope. You see, we can see little things far away. The pretext actually, or the prefix, um, actually intensifies the word. In the ancient Greek, the overseer was one who came unannounced to check to see of the readiness of the troops. The overseer was the one that made sure that we were always ready to go into battle. You see, our overseer wants to make sure that we have on his full armor, that we are prepared. You see, Jesus is not only my example, he is my empower. He's not only my savior, he's my sustainer. He's not only my 
uh, provider. He is the one who protects. Earlier this week, I, I did a, uh, a survey. It was a uh, non-scientific uh, survey. But I asked on Facebook, um, what does WWJD stand for? And then I asked, not only what does it stand for, I said, hey, what does it mean to you? And I received over 30 responses, and I want to share some of them with you here today. I asked myself, will this thought, action, word, bring me closer to him or take me away from him? It grounds me to reflect in situations to make godly decisions versus my own. I try to keep WWJD thought in my head in front of any decisions I make. It particularly is helpful before reacting to anything. One of my top favorites. It reminds me that Christ was once flesh and I am human just like him. It gives him street cred. He helps me accept his will when I'm not happy and I don't understand. Basically been there, done that. I've always looked at WWJD, or I've always looked at it as WWJW, what would Jesus want? To stop and reflect on how Jesus would want me to respond rather than my fleshly response. It keeps me grounded, less judgmental of others. Everyone has a story, and everyone has good and bad times. It helps me make better decisions. I live every moment as if Jesus is watching because it's a stopping point, a place to pause. And this last one is probably my favorite because I know I've fallen into this position and many of you probably have as well. Not going to lie, too often I react without thinking. That's probably a lot of us. But we need to remember that Jesus is there for us. He's always watching. And I want to finish with two acrostics. The first one is WDJD. What did Jesus do? He died for you. He took your place. Your place of condemnation. The curse that should have been yours. Jesus took it for you. And then the final one, WWID. What will I do? Jesus paid for your salvation. But you must submit, surrender, and be saved. And then once you're saved, you've been called to serve. And there will be some suffering that comes along with that serving, serving, but it's been what we've been called to do. I want, I want to close with one final statement here this morning because one of the things that we, we like to talk a lot about is volunteering. 
We really like that word volunteering. Hey, we need you to volunteer with the the move ministry. We need you to volunteer with the preschool. We need to vo- we need you to volunteer to be a part of the lawn mowing committee. We need you to volunteer to to be a part of the guest services and and hand out bulletins. We need you to volunteer to be a part of all of these different ministries that are out there. But you see, volunteer means that you serve when it's convenient. A servant serves out of commitment. Someone said it well, the servant does what he is told when he is told to do it. The volunteer does what he wants to do when he feels like doing it. We have been called to serve. Where do you find yourselves this morning? There may be here someone this morning that you've never given your life to Christ and you need to start with that very first step. Understanding that Jesus paid the price for you and that you need to be saved. And if that is the decision that you need to make, I want you to come to the back and I'm going to be in the back and I would love to talk to you about what that means, what that looks like in your life. Maybe it's that second part that you're struggling with where you're at in your walk with Christ. You've given your life to Him. You've been saved. And for the most part, you've been living that life that you've been called to live. But there's something that you're struggling with. And you need prayer. You need someone to talk to. I'm going to be in the back. Jared's going to be in the back with me. And if you need someone to talk with, someone to pray with you, someone just to listen, we would love to meet you in the back to talk with you, to listen to you, to help you make those decisions. Whatever decision you have to make, will you make it as we continue our worship? Please stand.